Uh, this morning, we're continuing in a, a series that I have personally found very inspiring uh, and very encouraging on the church. And Ryan is going to continue this morning on the subject of the temple and all that that means. I'm reading from two passages this morning. The first is Isaiah chapter 6, the first seven verses. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and live among a people of unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed, and your sin is atoned for. And then two verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is verse 16 and 17. Don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and that is what you are. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. If I've not yet had the pleasure to meet you, my name is Ryan Vincent, and I'm one of the pastors here at Sunnybrook, and um, I look forward to, to walking through the idea that we are the place where God dwells. Something we all say, something I think we all know at some level, and then I think it's something that most of us quickly get to the point where we're like, and I don't really know what to do with that. So here's what I want to do. I want to, I want to back up and, and, and begin this way. Certain industries have, uh, have laid claim to certain phrases such that you don't even have to be in that industry to understand what's going on. You'll know this one. You'll all know what industry owns this phrase. Location, location, location. Real estate, right? Another industry that could claim that phrase is writing fairy tales. Hold, hold there for just a second. In seminary, I had one class that was on writing well, and one of the assigned textbooks was just a blank book of prompts. It was the first line to a story, and whatever the line is, you fill in the story after that. And it was intended to kind of get you over the blank page problem and to, to just start writing. And they have it broken up in sections, like here's the first line to a good mystery story, and then you just make it up. They have like a, a children's section, a fairy tale section in this book, and I pulled it off the shelf, and then I said, okay. I'm noticing something here. Location is a big deal when you begin a story, whether it's locating things geographically or situationally or chronologically. 
Because listen to a number of these examples of how to start a good fairy tale. Once upon a time in a faraway land. And you hear that and you're like, oh, he's about to tell a kid's story. Once upon a time in a faraway land. You give me time and you give me some kind of otherworldly context, kid's story. Long, long ago in a distant land. Whoever wrote this book didn't have a whole lot to work with, so we just restate the same thing in new words. Many years ago, in a small country village, which I'm convinced might be the beginning of Beauty and the Beast. We get to this little village in France, and there's Belle. There once was a magical kingdom called, and then you just write the story. Now, what's interesting is how much they want to locate you contextually and situationally and geographically and chronologically. And what it does is it helps you, the second you start reading that book, know what's going to come and how to think about it. It asks you to, for the next little while, suspend your disbelief. We're playing make This is a fairy tale. You can tell it's a fairy tale usually within the very first few lines. And so it says, approach this not as historical narrative, nor as historical fact, but as something fun and playful. It's a magical world. Let me give you another one. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. It sounds like the beginning of a fairy tale. And I bring that up because, uh, like it or not, most people who are not within these walls or within other houses of worship look at it like a fairy tale. And when push comes to shove, they have at times trained us to look at it like that too. A technical term for this mindset that's been ingrained in us is that we have developed a disenchanted view of the world. Some of the things I'm going to tell you the Bible says about you, particularly as it relates to the presence of God in you, sound too good to be true. They sound like fairy tales. And before we reason our way out of things or explain away deeply profound truths because they just, quite frankly, sound too magical to believe? What if, what if we're supposed to readily embrace a more enchanted understanding of the world? Truth is, we like the disenchantment that we often encounter um, for a number of reasons. A couple I've noticed is uh, explaining the transcendent to the world is hard. I don't know how, I'm getting tired of how many times I am, I, I'm left saying, I cannot explain to you spiritual things to your satisfaction because you're not a spiritual person. I can't explain to you the concept of a transcendent God who would dare to put part of him, to, to make him in union with us because you have no concept of the supernatural or the transcendent. I mean, it's hard to explain the biblical world. Anybody else just walk around praying, no one asks you what you think of Genesis 1 and 2? It's hard to explain. It doesn't make it untrue it just makes it uncomfortable to talk about at times. Uh, another reason that this is, is kind of the hand we've been dealt is precisely that. The, the dominant worldview is one of a disenchanted world, where when I talk about a God, 
who does the things that he does beyond the explanatory power of any sort of discipline, it's like, this is really easy to dismiss out of hand because that's the, that's the water we swim in. And when push comes to shove, I start to drink the disenchanted water and I start looking for, um, I, I, I really appreciate the idea of Christian apologetics. Sometimes I feel like I'm trying to, um, as a living person, explain math to someone who's just a corpse. And apologetics can sometimes try too much to lift a burden that really the, only Spirit, the Holy Spirit can. The third reason that um, I think we are drawn to the disenchanted world, or at least uncomfortable with an enchanted world, is that we are um, very comfortable with being cultural chameleons. Here's what I mean by that. Anybody uh, in the office or on campus really not going around looking for people to ask you about your faith and your convictions on certain areas? Why? Some of us just don't like to have a, like a complicated conversation. I get that. We're peacemakers. Some of us realize the social advantage of being cultural chameleons. And I'd like to hold my convictions close to the chest for other reasons. I, um, I, I want to ask us to spend the next 30 minutes believing with everything we have in an enchanted world. Jesus says in John 11 that you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Uh, the great author, American author Flannery O'Connor put like a spin on that. And she said this, she said, the truth, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you odd. I love that. She'll know the truth and the truth shall make you odd. And she's, she's hinting at this idea that um, our book, our faith, our convictions are not just somewhat, but are altogether incompatible with the faith and the convictions of a world that doesn't know Christ. And so we just have to steal our resolve and be okay with that and hold on to a worldview where God is real and he does intervene. So I would like if we could muster the ability to engage with enchanted imaginations, suspend our skepticism, and hear what God says has actually happened to us. Because we have another hurdle to get through. The hurdle, I'm calling it, of holiness. Holiness presents a number of problems. First, many of us, myself included, often don't feel holy. And this is connected to the temple because that, I mean, just put the cards out there. The fact that we are temples of the Holy Spirit means that we have been sanctified, which is just a fancy way of saying we have been holied, consecrated, set apart. And holiness is hard because, quite frankly, I don't always feel so holy, Ryan. I get that. I think one of the reasons that we often don't feel holy is because we've adopted what I'm beginning to call a solidarity of sin. So when someone wants to say, um, you know, I'm not perfect, and we all say, no, 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 I'm not perfect, I'm just as bad as you are. And it's this, it's this social strategy that says, like, as if, I can, if I can get down here with you, and, and we're all bad, and we're all terrible, and we're all bad, and we're all terrible, then eventually you're going to like what I have to say, and I'm just like, I don't know if what you're saying is true, actually. Especially if you're speaking to someone who does not have the Holy Spirit. 
To say I'm just as unholy as you is not true. I'm not saying you're lying. I'm just saying it's not true. But there is, a, there is something to be gained by, by, by employing a solidarity of sin. Because what have we done with the word holy? We've turned it into an epithet. Oh, you're just being holier than thou. That's an insult, by the way. What we mean by it is we mean pharisaical, but that's really not the case. We're not being pharisaical. We're misusing the word. You're just being holier than thou. I would hope so, <laughs> quite frankly. Holiness seems to be a virtue in the Bible. I think the final thing that maybe is a, a, one of our hurdles to holiness is that it's just really difficult to define. It seems so abstract. Like last week, Brandon's talking about being adopted into the family of God, and we have like tangible hooks to hang that idea on. When we have a sheep and we see what it looks like to be a sheep under the care of a shepherd, that's, that's very like tangible and visceral, and we, we understand, but whenever it's, you're a temple, so you're holy, it's like, ugh, those are just words. I don't know what to do with those. I think sometimes we even misunderstand holiness when we equate it to perfection. To be holy is to be perfect. Now, God is both holy and perfect, but they are not synonymous. So what is holiness? Exodus 15 offers, um, I think, a very helpful insight into how the Bible understands the holiness of God particularly. So the story of Exodus is Exodus 1 and 2. Moses is born in Egypt, raised in Pharaoh's household, gets the, the finest education in the land, and then he leaves Egypt to, to, to be married in the wilderness, and he, he functions as a shepherd for, for 40 years. And then in Exodus 3, God encounters him in a burning bush, and he goes back, and he and, and, and Aaron are, are and they're just they're dealing with Pharaoh, and... It's this account of the, you know, the ten plagues. That's kind of a really bad name for them. It's ten all-out assaults on ten Egyptian deities. That's what God is doing. He's establishing himself as the supreme God in the, in the cosmological sphere, sphere right there. And so what he does is he defeats this God and that God and that God. And then finally, on the death of the firstborn throughout the nation of Egypt, God triumphs over the great fertility God of Egypt. And then the slaves are freed, and Moses leads them out. And he leads them through the Red Sea, and then the, the, the Egyptian army is crushed. And on the other side of this event, Moses, the great leader that he was, who has defeated one of the great kingdoms by the power of his God, destroying these other gods, does what every great leader does after the battle. He sings. Song of Moses, Exodus 15. And in verse 11, he says, sings some things about the Lord that just illustrate perhaps how a better way to look at holiness would be. So he says this, he says, Lord, who is like you among the gods? Most certainly having in mind the 10 gods he just saw lose. Who is like you, glorious in holiness, revered with praises, performing wonders? And if we had time to string together so many other texts to talk about the holiness of God, the holiness of God 
could be likened to purity at some sense. It's never really described in the terms of perfection, but what it really gets at is his distinctiveness. He is set apart. He is not like anything or anyone else. He is distinct. So holiness is to be different than, okay? We also see that God's holiness has an effective quality to it. When you encounter the holiness of God, it is not something that you do standing tall with your chest out. The holiness of God, like, humbles people. They fall down. On occasion, they fall down dead. They fall down in fear. His holiness is so distinctive that you can't really deal with it head on. And so it becomes an interesting thing to to track when you say, okay, well, if the holiness of God is both God being different and God having an effect on the things that are around him and the things that are around him not having an effect on him, it only goes in one direction. What do we do with holy places like temples? What do we do with temples? At its simplest, a temple is a, um, a structure dedicated to the glory of a deity And it is a special location in which that deity's domain and the domain of those who submit to the deity overlap. You could say, in some sense, the center of of Israel's temple is where heaven and earth intersect in a very special way. Let me tell you about the first temple. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The first temple. The cosmos were the first temple. The first three days of the creation narrative details God creating spaces, containers. Creates time, separates the night from the day. Creates the heavens and the earth. Separates the land and the waters. He creates spaces. The following three days, days four, five, and six, he he furnishes his temple populates it with living things. Day seven, he sits down on his throne and rests. If you were to describe the the, the concept of the universe when the Garden of Eden is, is still without sin and fully flourishing, you have all of the world, and then you have this garden, and then you have the inner sanctum of that garden, Eden out of which flow the rivers of life from the tree of life. And you have God, there's nowhere that God isn't, so it's not as though he's not in the rest of his creation. Nothing can contain him. That's 1 Kings 8, when Solomon builds his temple. He's like, clearly this can't contain you. So God is everywhere, but there's a special presence of God that's nourishing and watering this garden. And then there's an extra special presence of God that is inside Eden, walking in the cool of the day with his prized creation, Adam and Eve. God is with his people, dwelling with his people in the inner sanctuary. Now, if you, if you, you some of you may be thinking this one, that's fine. Ryan, I think you have constructed a temple paradigm that the text cannot bear. Maybe in Genesis 1 and 2 it cannot, but if you see how the temples worked themselves out throughout the history of Israel, you'll see how they thought about the creation account. So this next slide, 
is the tabernacle, the mobile temple, the first temple. Shortly after Exodus 15, Moses commissions the building of this tabernacle, and it is a mobile place of worship. And where you see this little priest guy on the bottom right, he's standing outside. He's standing out in the outer area of the, the, the God's sanctuary, so to speak. He's in the world. And when he passes through that first, um, that first curtain, he has entered into what's known as the holy place. This is God's temple. And then when he passes through the second curtain, he is now in the holy of holies. Now, here's how they connect. Adam and Eve were in the holy of holies of the first temple, the, the Garden of Eden. When they messed everything up, they had to leave the temple. God sent them packing, and what did he do? He closed the temple, and at the gate, he put guarding to cherubim. On the inner curtain, before you get to the Holy of Holies, are embroidered two cherubim. These are angelic beings that prevent humanity from coming any further to places where they ought not tread because beyond this is the holiness of God and humanity is unfit for this part of the world. The next slide, the tabernacle functioned well for some time. Um, it took it from the Red Sea or the wilderness all the way around, crossed the River Jordan going from east to west into the Promised Land. The tabernacle functioned for some time at Shiloh and then it was condemned. And shortly thereafter, David really wanted to build a temple, but he was a man of blood. Couldn't do it. God wouldn't let him. So his son did it. Solomon built this spectacularly beautiful temple. You walk in the front door, and you're in the holy place. You walk up the steps through the gates, and you're in the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant is stood in the middle, guarded by two cherubim. They kept recreating the Garden of Eden in symbolic fashion. I don't know if you've ever wondered about like the whole thing with the sacrificial altar outside. Many speculate that Israel had as that, um, as that altar just outside. Not only was it God's command, but that it represented the altar of Cain and Abel, where they were offering sacrifices outside of Eden, recognizing very much that they are no longer fit to go in. The temple in Jerusalem was an especially holy place, and the Holy of Holies even more so. Now, temples were... They were spectacular, um, beautiful. They would instill awe and reverence, but I, I wonder if, in addition to the sacrificial system, one of their primary uh, purposes was to highlight the distinction between God and his people. To illustrate that I am kind to remain with you, but there are rules here. There are limits. You will have my gracious presence with you always, but there are limits because I am holy and you are not. Now, encounters with God's holiness take place in more places than just temple-like structures. I already mentioned Exodus 3. It's interesting how God's presence renders a place holy. In Exodus 3... Moses, it says, was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro. 
the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire but not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't this bush burning up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, he answered. And then what does God do? Do not come closer. I am here. There are limits. I am here. Know the difference between you and I. Do not come closer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Encounters with God's holiness would be worrisome in most cases. Because you're suddenly face to face with the distinction between you and someone altogether more powerful, infinitely so, and more holy than you. And we get this same sense when Isaiah encounters the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6. And rather than conclude with fear, you start to see the inbreaking of God's grace and his mercy. In Isaiah 6, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne. This is temple imagery. And the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him, and they each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. His glory fills the whole earth. Fills the whole cosmic temple. The foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of armies. Now, Isaiah, of all people, may have actually had warrant to believe himself to be the one Israelite at that time most fit to see God, to be in his presence, and he understands because God is holy, the, the distinction between the Lord and him. And he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. And he starts to panic at the holiness of God. But this is where God makes a very interesting move. So one of the seraphim flew to me and his hand in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar, very temple imagery with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. Isaiah says, I am a man of unclean lips, and the Lord doesn't argue with him. Yes, you are. Let me fix that. You're going to have a wild encounter with my holiness to your benefit. It's interesting if you just kind of peruse the Bible and look at issues of holiness or cleanliness. Anytime you come in contact with an unclean thing or an unholy thing, you are defiled. But it's only God who functions the other direction. When he comes into contact with things, when it is his purpose to cleanse or to sanctify, he confers holiness. Just watch Jesus heal people in the Gospels. 
The problem that we have is the problem that Isaiah recognizes, is that we have a sin problem. We were, in our first parents, in Adam and Eve, we were removed from the garden, and we turned, and we cannot get back through that curtain. It's guarded by the cherubim. We have a sin problem, which means we have a holiness problem, which means we have an unfit for the temple, unfit for the presence of God problem. Now, the temple came in many iterations. Solomon built his in probably the 10th century B.C. In 586 B.C., it was leveled by the Babylonians, crushed, and people were taken into captivity. Seventy years later, many of the slaves who were taken into captivity in Babylon returned with the permission to rebuild their temple, and they built what became known as Zerubbabel's Temple, which, compared to Solomon's, looked like it was made out of a couple of cinder blocks and some, lean to, and some lumber they found on the side of the road. And there were, in the, in the community of people that came back from Babylon, men who had lived long enough to have seen Solomon's temple before it was destroyed, and now they see the new one, and they just weep because there's no splendor here. There's no glory. This is unfit for a God as holy as ours. And that one is leveled. And then about 10 years before Jesus was born, Herod the Great built a new one, a bigger one, a better one. It, it, it dwarfed Solomon's. And it was spectacular. The Jews in Jesus' day would brag about it. They loved it. And then Jesus spent most of his ministry dismantling the idea of it, rendering it null and void and saying, I'm going to destroy that one day. Jesus replaced the temple. He replaced it. We notice that when, we, when he starts to take on the functions of the temple, like he just starts healing people. You go to the temple to do that. Performing miracles, you go to the temple to do that. Forgiving people, not forgiving someone who had wronged him, conferring forgiveness on people who had a sin problem. You go to the temple to do that. Jesus starts taking on all the temple's roles. One story kind of includes many of these ideas in Mark chapter 2 famous story of the man man whose friends brought him to Jesus. He's a paralytic. It says in verse 5, seeing their faith, seeing his friend's faith, Jesus told the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. That's the temple's job. But some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone through the sacrificial system at the temple alone? Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves and said to them, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and take, take up your mat and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Authority that to this point was connected to the priestly system as it functioned out of the temple. Just so you know that the Son of Man, that Jesus is robbing the temple of its authority to forgive sins. Watch this. Told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he got up, took the mat, and went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. In a person, we've seen it at that building over there, that big temple complex that Herod the Great so graciously built us. We've never seen anything like this in someone's home with a guy. He's robbing the temple of all of its function and authority. 
Later on in Mark 11, he will condemn the temple and render its worship and its services null and void. Walking into the temple on the week of Passover, he passes a fig tree, tells a little parable about how this is not going to grow any more figs anymore. Jesus goes in, flips tables over in the temple complex in judgment, comes back, the fig tree is withered. It's a very visual, symbolic judgment. Jesus takes on the roles of the temple, takes on the function of the temple, and shuts the temple down. Those sacrifices continued. Never again would a sacrifice have been accepted from the temple complex after Jesus judged it. And why? Because just a few days later, that sacrificial system is unnecessary because Jesus went to the cross. He has completely robbed the temple of anything it stands for. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus made one sacrifice forever for all sins. So Jesus is the new temple. But then Jesus starts this strange little ministry with his disciples whereby they make new temples. At Pentecost, the Spirit of God comes in like a rushing wind. Flames of fire flicker above people's heads. They speak in languages that they didn't otherwise know. And they are experiencing the promise that Jesus made in the Gospels that once he had atoned for their sins and dealt with their holiness problem, that he would again take up residence in them by sending the counselor. At Pentecost in Acts 2, thousands of little temples were made. And they walk around as new believers, baptized believers. Functionally, they are new holy of holies. That's why that imagery at the end of Matthew's gospel where when Jesus gives up his spirit, the temple curtain is ripped in two. It's like saying to the cherubim who have been guarding the presence of God from the filthiness of humanity, your job is done here. In Ephesians 1, we read this last week, but God chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless, sanctified little temples in love before him. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is concerned with some some sexual issues going on in the church in Corinth, and he goes at them through the temple imagery. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, he says? The Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. Remember in the the cosmos at the very beginning, the very first temple that God created for himself, he, he built that. And Paul is saying, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit that he just built for himself. He created you in the first place, and now he has created you again. He has given you new life in the Spirit. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. You are a temple of the living God. And the subtext is, so act like it. (laughs) Not only are we individual temples of the Holy Spirit, we are collectively a new temple. Dealing with uh, an issue related to unity in the church. 
In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says this, Don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and that's what you are. Now, I, I want to I underscore something that, that can really help us to, to, to see what it is that Paul is getting at, because again, this is in the context of unity within the church. So I, I gave you the translation name there, the, the Christian Standard Bible. Um, if you go to the next slide, here's another translation. This is not the RSV you're used to. This is the Ryan Standard Bible version. All the pronouns in 1 Corinthians 3 are plural. So I rednecked it a little bit so we could get it. <laughs> Don't you guys know that y'all are God's temple and that the Spirit of God lives in all y'all? That's Paul. They're all plural. And so he's not saying, don't you know, Jeff Butler, that the Spirit of God lives in you. He's saying, don't, in the context of Christian unity, don't all of you know the Spirit of God lives in all of you? If anyone tears apart all of you, God will destroy him. It's like, okay, Paul, I got it. All of us, got it. There's a collective aspect to being the temple of God. In fact, it makes me think through when we, when we gather in corporate worship collectively, what does that say about the, the multiplicity of God's presence? The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 2, as you, again plural, come to him, that's Jesus, a living stone, rejected by people but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves, plural again, as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter is invoking the collective, and he says, together you guys make up a spiritual house to offer spiritual sacrifices which are acceptable. And it won't be on the screens, but it just sends my mind racing to Romans 12. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing. Temples were holy places where you offered sacrifices to please the deity. Offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Together, you and I bring the sacred to a world that doesn't understand it. When we gather in this room, I don't think there's anything especially wonderful about this room. I think it's a beautiful room, but there's nothing inherently sacred about it until you guys get here and start worshiping God here, and then it becomes an extremely sacred place. Because all of the little temples have showed up. And together they form one beautiful temple called Sunnybrook. And then we get to participate in the union we have with Christ as we then go out and live out our commission to make more temples. As Brandon explained last week, bringing others in into the adopted family of God. When, you, when you're adopted into the family of God, you are made a place of God's special presence. You are made into his temple. 
And I wonder if collectively we can, we can make more temples by bringing the sacred to them. Don't underestimate the, the power of the Spirit of Jesus in you. I've, um, I didn't come up with this idea, but I've really grown to love it. It's kind of something I, I think through in terms of the holiness that I carry around with me. When I, when I step into a conversation that's already happening, two or three people, and I enter that conversation, do I make it more holy? Or am I a, a drain on the net holiness there? You see, there's both, there's both like a positional aspect to being holy as God's temple, and then there's an, uh, an actual working it out aspect to it. Do I make places more holy with my speech, with my action? The problem that we run into quite often, though, is we don't feel it. We do not feel holy. I have no ability to make you feel something, but I could remind you of what is true. Kevin DeYoung says in his book, The Whole in Our Holiness, one of the central motivations for holiness in the New Testament is to be who you are, to understand your identity and your union in Christ, and to live that way. Now let me encourage you with some words from this sacred text, and there are three ways that we can think about the holiness that we do or do not feel. The first is, like it or not, if you have the Spirit of God in you, you are holy. Whether you feel it or you don't, you are holy. You were made holy. Past tense, you were made holy. Hebrews 10 says this, for by one offering, he has, Jesus has perfected forever those who are sanctified. Who are, are sanctified. Sanctified is just another way of saying holified. Set apart, made sacred, perfected forever, are now currently sanctified. Ryan, I still don't feel it. I know. A lot of times I don't either. That's why Paul will pray things asking for people to lean into their holiness and to grow in it. Because we are, if we are uh, if we already were made holy, we are also in the process of being made holy. Paul says this to the church in Thessalonica, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. He says, I want to come see you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and for everyone, just as we do for you. May he make your hearts blameless in holiness, as is fitting for temples of the living God. When? Well, and before our God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Amen. Paul sees this as a lifelong endeavor. And he's praying that you would grow into the holiness that you already have. And then we have the hope that one day we will be in the fullness of our holiness as it is gifted to us by the Lord, we will be made holy. Some of the most precious verses in the Bible are in Revelation chapter 21. The Apostle John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. In other words, the first temple God designed, it's gone. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. That's you. That's not a city. It's not Jerusalem. That's the people of God. Why? Because then he describes it. Prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. One of the favorite imageries from the New Testament on who the body is. As it says, then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. It's like Eden has been remade. The Bible begins in the garden and likewise ends in one. They will be his people's. And God himself will be with them and he will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. We are holy. We are being made holy. And we will one day experience holiness in its fullness. Now, doesn't that sound like a fairy tale? Sounds kind of magical. Well, if I I were to add a little entry to that little book of writing prompts, I might start a story like this, or give you just a summary of it. Once upon a time, God created the heavens and the earth, and it was good. And his most prized creation, humanity, messed everything up. Instead of destroying his enemies, God made a way, a cross-shaped way, for sinners like you and me to become temples of his Holy Spirit bursting with his goodness and his mercy and speaking life-giving truths to a dying world in the power of Jesus. So when people ask me, where is God at work in the world today? I just have lots of little temples to point to. And I wonder if we found another industry where we can say, location, location, location. 